0: perpetrated on people, but we were introduced in 1 Samuel chapter 22 to a man named Doeg the Edomite, and I'm certain that this fellow would rival both of those guys when it came to just being pure evil. The only difference between Hitler, Stalin, and Doeg the Edomite was opportunity, because Doeg the Edomite killed everybody he had an opportunity to kill. Doeg the Edomite is is without a doubt one of the worst characters in all of the Old Testament. You'll recall that this fellow, Doeg the Edomite, was in Nob, presumably overseeing the care of the king's flocks, when David arrived in Nob seeking help from Ahimelech the priest. David lied to Ahimelech that day. There's a lot of debate about David's lie. Was it a noble lie, if there is such a thing, or was it not a noble lie? Was it designed to give Ahimelech plausible deniability? So perhaps if Saul ever did question him about what business David had, Ahimelech could possibly say, well, I was just doing what I thought you wanted me to do. He said he came from you. Whatever the case, we know it didn't work out that way. Because this rascal, Doeg the Edomite, went right straight to Saul when the time came and really misrepresented what had been said by David to Ahimelech and the other priests. If you'll turn to 1 Samuel chapter 22 with me for just a moment, I want to remind you of some of the things that this fellow did. In 1 Samuel chapter 22, verses 9 through 10, Then Doeg the Edomite, who was standing by the servants of Saul, answered and said, I saw the son of Jesse, this is David, I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob." To Ahimelech the son of Ahitub. And he inquired of the Lord for him, gave him provisions, and gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine. Well, actually, that is a truth. It's a truth that is not complete enough, though. That statement is not complete enough that Saul would have gotten the entire flavor of what was happening there. Yes, he did inquire of the Lord for David. He did give him Goliath's sword, and he did give him provisions. But what this fellow, Doeg the Edomite, neglected to tell Saul was that David had told Ahimelech that he was on a mission from Saul. Ahimelech wasn't trying to hurt Saul in the process, but Doeg the Edomite sure made it seem that way. Since Saul was becoming more and more insane because of his rebellion against God, Saul eventually orders the slaughter of all of the priests of Nob, who were there, 85 of them altogether. He orders the slaughter, but his men won't do it. These men did the right thing by not just blindly following Saul's orders. When the order is insane, given by an insane person, the order should have been disobeyed. Hitler's order should have been disobeyed, too. Just because Hitler was in charge does not mean that Hitler's order should have been followed to the letter. Look at verses 18 and 20. Then the king said to Doeg, you turn around and attack the priest. And Doeg the Edomite turned around and attacked the priest, and he killed that day 85 men who wore the linen ephod, And he struck Nob, the city of the priests, with the edge of the sword, both men and women, children and infants, also oxen, donkeys, and sheep. He struck with the edge of the sword. He didn't just stop with the 85 priests that were in Gibeah with Saul that day. He went back to that village and killed everybody in the village. I can't see any appreciable difference between Doeg the Edomite and Hitler or Stalin. Because Doeg killed everybody he had a chance. He had an opportunity to kill. He's one bad guy. When David's told of everything that happens by the lone survivor, Abiathar, he is deeply, deeply grieved. And he takes responsibility himself. For the deaths of the priest. Had he not sought help there at Nov, This would have never happened. Sometime after these events. David sits down. And he writes. Psalm 52. Reflecting back upon this fellow. Doeg the Edomite. While David. Took full responsibility. Upon himself. For the deaths of those. Priests. It's Doeg who had actually done the deed. Psalm 52 is going to present a strong contrast between two concepts. The concept of evil, the evil of Doeg the Edomite, and the concept of God's chesed. Chesed, you've heard this term before. It's one of the most important terms in Hebrew Bible. Chesed has been translated a lot of different ways depending upon the context and depending upon the translators. It's been translated love, loyal love, faithful love. It can also be translated mercy, grace, faithfulness. But I think one of the better translations that seems to be universally accepted is loyal love. What we have in Psalm 52 is a comparison and a contrast between God's loyal love, God's hesed, and this concept of the evil that is perpetrated by Doeg the Edomite. The inscription of the psalm gives us the setting. For the choir director, a masculine of David, when Doeg the Edomite came and told Saul and said to him, David has come to the house of Ahimelech. This psalm is written shortly after the events that I just told you about. What does the psalm say? In verse 1 of chapter 52, Why do you boast in evil, O mighty man? The loving kindness of God endures All day long. Why do you boast in evil, O mighty man? David calling Doeg a mighty man has got to be at least just a little bit ironic, or if you prefer the word, sarcastic. There should be a little bit of a a dripping sarcasm in his voice when he says this. Why do you boast in evil, O mighty man? Doeg was hardly brave. The term there is a term that's used of a warrior, but Doing is hardly a brave warrior. He slaughtered innocent people who were unarmed. He slaughtered people that weren't even trained to fight back. That doesn't make you a warrior. It makes you a moral monster. So that first sentence there is not really a serious sentence, at least the almighty oh, man part. Why do you boast in evil, almighty oh, man? In contrast to this mighty man who boasts and brags about his evil, we have the hesed of God. The hesed of God that endures all day long. The contrast in this psalm then is going to be between evil, ra, or at least in verse 1 it's a derivative of the word ra, and the term hesed. The raw of man and the hesed of God, or specifically the raw of Doeg the Edomite, and the hesed of God, the loving kindness of God endures all day long. I think it's here that we need to stop for just a moment and consider the concept of evil. This is a question that a lot of skeptics have about Christianity: where did evil come from? If God's all good, then why is there evil? And they think that that's an argument against theism. It really isn't. We've all experienced evil, haven't we? Either we've had evil perpetrated upon us, even recently, perhaps, some of you, or we see evil on television. In a place where my son was just a couple years ago to study Spanish, and Jeff Early, one of our friends, went to study Spanish, Cornavaca, Mexico. This week, they were hanging people by light post, dead bodies, beheaded bodies. This is in a pretty nice spot. We heard tonight of People who were kidnapped for ransom. These are all evil things, and they may not be perpetrated on us personally, but if you haven't had evil perpetrated upon you personally, you certainly have seen evil. We're all familiar with it. The argument that people have, though, is something like this. If God is the creator of everything, and evil is a thing, then that must mean that God created evil. And if God created evil, then the next question would be, is he some sort of moral monster? I just called Doeg the Edomite a moral monster. But is God really a moral monster? If he's the one that created everything and evil is a thing, then is God some sort of moral monster? Since the beginning of Western civilization, the Western intellectual thought, the source and the nature of evil have been hotly debated. If God created everything and evil is something, then God must have created evil, mustn't he? Is God the author of sin? You've heard that question before. A lot of people in the Reformed community ask that question. Is God the author of sin? Sometimes when we overstress, and I mean that, when we overstress one attribute of God to the exclusion of the others, we might get the idea. Well, God's in charge of everything, and he could stop anything anytime he wanted to and we have no free will whatsoever, then God must be the author of sin, they say. You know, remember back in the Star Wars films of the 70s? I know they had an updated version of them recently. I didn't see those. But in the Star Wars films of the 70s, there was a good side of the force and a bad side of the force. They seemed to be almost equally balanced. And some people have that idea about good and evil. But in reality, good and evil are not two opposite things. Because evil in and of itself, is not a thing. Augustine had it right when he defined evil as a real lack, privation, or corruption of a good thing. Evil is not a thing in and of itself. Evil is a corruption of good. Yes, God created everything. I'll give you that. That's true. The Bible tells us that. But we also see in Genesis chapter 1 that everything he created, he pronounced good, tov. When he got to the creation of human beings, he called them tov me'od, extremely good. Whatever evil is here right now is here because something that was good became corrupted. I know this might sound like a real technical philosophical point, but it's huge because the number one, Reason why people say they reject God now is this problem of evil. They say, Listen, you theists worship a good God. Well, where did evil come from? Well, we're going to answer that. Norman Geisler likened evil to a wound in an otherwise healthy arm. Wounds are real. He's not saying that evil's not real, but evil's not a thing in and of itself. The arm is healthy tissue. A wound is a corruption of that healthy tissue. There's no such thing as a totally wounded body. A totally wounded body wouldn't be a body anymore. That's one teaching metaphor that we might have for understanding what evil is. It's like a wound in an otherwise healthy arm. Or it's like a, it's like rot in an otherwise healthy tree. Or rust on a car. Or a moth-eaten sweater that's made of wool. Evil is not just the absence of good, it's the corruption of good. So if we say that God didn't create evil, he created good, which is something that flowed forth from his character. Evil can't flow forth from God's character, because there is no evil in God's character. But if God created good, yet we have evil, that's a reality. We said, I think we all admit we've experienced it. There's no denying evil. It may not be a thing, but it's real. We see it. then where did evil come from? If it didn't come from God, where did it come from? We know from the Scriptures that God created both angelic beings and human beings with free will. With free will, both man and angels, but we'll stick with man for just a moment, with free will, man can choose to either love God or to rebel against God. It's a free choice. If God made his creatures love him, then our will is not truly free, and we don't really love him at all. Back to Norman Geisler, he has what has been called by some a rather crude illustration, but it makes the point. If love is forced upon somebody against their will, and there's any physical nature to that at all, we typically call that rape. Love against someone's will. Forcing one's love on somebody against their will in a physical way is rape. Father Gosser says God's not a divine rapist. He wants us to love him. He woos us to love him. He blesses us, but he doesn't force us. He gives us free will, and that free will allows us to choose either to obey him or disobey him, to love him or to rebel against him. This is one problem I have with certain aspects of extreme Reformed theology. Because in extreme Reformed theology, they say, well, we really don't have free will. And I'm talking about the extreme version of it. We won't really have free will. God really manipulates all of our decisions. And if God really manipulates all of our decisions, and we don't have free will, then we don't really love him. That's why a lot of people who are extreme Reformed people don't believe in rewards in heaven. Because what would be the point of rewards in them? Because God made you decide everything that you ever decided. That's a neat theological theory, but it's not a biblical theological theory. God makes us responsible for the decisions that we make. And one of the decisions that he makes us responsible to make is whether we accept him or we reject him. Whether we trust Jesus Christ as our Savior or whether we refuse to trust Jesus Christ as our Savior. Now watch. Paul in 1 Timothy says that God desires all men to be saved. Every single person. That's God's desire. And God is also sovereign. If that's God's desire that all be saved, and God's going to force his will on you, then all would be saved. But all are not saved. That means that God doesn't force his will on you. He enables you to come to him. He woos you to himself. But he doesn't force his will on you. Otherwise, everyone would be saved. If he forced his will on you and there was no free will, either angelic or human, then those who say what I think is an absurd statement would be right. God is the author of sin. He is the author of evil. If there's no free will, God is the author of evil. But there is free will. God is not the author of evil. You know who the author of evil was? From an angelic standpoint, it's Lucifer. The angelic being Lucifer, we call him Satan or the devil. From a human perspective, the author of sin or the author of evil, from a human perspective, would be the first human beings, Adam and Eve. They're the ones that used their free will to choose against God. They brought evil. They corrupted something that was good. Satan is, therefore, the source of evil from an angelic perspective. And Adam, according to Romans chapter 5 verses 12 through 21, is the source of evil or sin from the human perspective. What some people like to argue, and maybe you're thinking this too, that maybe God is really responsible for evil because he created a world in which evil was possible. See what they might be saying? Well, he created man with free will, he gave him the ability to choose so He's ultimately responsible because he gave him this free will. But that's like saying Toyota is responsible for an accident that occurs out on the freeway because Toyota manufactured a car that was potentially capable of being driven the wrong way down the Katy Freeway. I know somebody that that happened to. At least he is a friend of a friend. He's in Prison now and it's where he needs to be because he went out to a bar, got completely drunk got up on the Katy Freeway several years back, drove the wrong way down the freeway in a Toyota, and killed another human being because of his negligence and his drunkenness driving the wrong way down the freeway. Nobody that I know of tried to blame it on Toyota, the manufacturer of the car. Yeah, it's potentially true that the car could be driven the wrong way. But it's the fault of the person driving the car. Not the person who manufactured the car. The car was designed to be used by a responsible person in obedience to the laws. Driven the right speed, on the right side of the road, unimpaired in any kind of way, chemically. When someone abuses that, it's their fault, not the car's fault. Just because God gave us free will, it doesn't mean that it's God's fault that Lucifer used it to rebel against him. So no, God is not the author of sin. God is not a moral monster. He gave us free will. And by the way, that means that that was the best possible world that God could create. A world where human beings had free will and could choose for him or choose against him. That being said, let me at least put this caveat on it. There are limits to our free will. We have free will to make moral decisions within a certain context. There are certain decisions I can't make. I can't make the decision right now to turn myself into a giraffe. I don't have the free will to do that. I can't make the free will decision to walk through that wall. There are some people that say that if I had enough faith, I could. I tried that before, actually accidentally, before I got married. I I had a house that had several different bedrooms in it. And for whatever reason, if I ever got up in the night to go to the restroom, I didn't ever go to the restroom in the bathroom that was in my bedroom. I always walked down the hall went to the restroom and another room. I guess I just wanted to use the whole house. I wanted to feel like I was getting my money's worth. So I walked down the hall that night. It was completely dark, but I was the only one that lived there, so I knew what doors were open and which ones weren't, and I ran right smack into a door. Almost broke my nose. I had every expectation that that door was open. I had 100% faith that the door was open. I couldn't see it, but I had 100% faith. What I didn't know was the lady that came by and cleaned my house, for some insane reason, shut the door that day. Doors never shut. But anyway, I'm glad she did it, because even though I almost broke my nose, perhaps did just a little bit, I had this illustration to tell you now. Even if I wanted, even if I had 100% faith that I could walk through that wall, I couldn't do it, because that's not one of the free will decisions God gave me that I could make. But he did give me thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of decisions that I could make, which all boil down to this. Am I going to choose for God and love him, or am I going to choose against God and be just as evil, in some ways, as Doeg the Edomite. With that background, Psalm 52 is a contrast between evil and hesed. In this context, in the context of Psalm 52, evil, watch, is a corruption of hesed. So now you see verse 1 again, why do you boast in evil, derivative of Ra, O mighty man, with dripping sarcasm, the loving kindness of God endures all day long. There's a comparison and contrast between those first two phrases. It makes perfect sense. Chesed is an aspect of God's goodness. The opposite of love or goodness can be hatred, But here, the opposite of chesed is not hatred, it's evil. Evil, in this passage, is a corruption of something good. That something good is chesed. It's a corruption of love. Now, do you see why Paul would say that the, the goal of all of our instruction is love? Because if we're to follow God in goodness... That's the ultimate application of following God in goodness is to exercise love in whatever situation we find ourselves. If you ever want to know what's the right thing to do morally, pick the thing that's the most loving, the most kind, the most good. But pick the thing that's the most loving. You can never go wrong if you do that. Evil is a corruption of hesed. But we will see as the psalm unfolds that God's chesed will be sufficient even against what seems like victorious evil. And one day those who choose to corrupt good into evil will pay for that decision. The bottom line in this psalm is going to be God's going to prevail in the end. People can choose to corrupt good into evil. People can appear to be victorious for a time when they corrupt good into evil, but in the end God wins. That's the psalm in a nutshell. Now do you see how all that fits in to Doeg the Edomite? Doeg the Edomite was as evil as they come. How could you be any less loving than to first lie about what happened at Nob that day, lie by omission, and then murder 85 priests, and then go to the village, which wasn't probably 30 minutes away from where he was, and then murder the rest of the men, women, and children in that village along with all their animals. How can it be any more evil than that? This guy has chosen the exact opposite of love. I don't think anybody in their right mind would say there's anything loving about that at all. That's evil. But God's hesed is going to be more powerful than Doeg the Edomite's evil. God's hesed is more powerful than the corruption. Now, verses 2, 3, and 4 expand on the theme. He's again speaking of Doeg the Edomite in the specific context your tongue devises destruction like a sharp razor, O worker of deceit. David's getting himself worked up over this. You lied. You lied to Saul. That's why these people are dead. Verse 3, you love evil more than good. This is a choice that Doag made. He, he made the choice to disregard love and to do evil. What he loved was the corruption. It's almost oxymoronic. You love falsehood more than speaking what is right. See, love. Pause. Stop. Let that sink in for just a moment. Now that that moment's passed, your love—you love all words that devour, O deceitful tongue. So what he's done in verses two through four is he's expanded on this idea of the contrast between the evil corruption of good that's doing the Edomite and God Himself. David is, of course, referencing. Doeg the Edomites hath truths in his conversation with Saul. What should have been used as an instrument of love, as an instrument of good, if you prefer, the tongue, Doeg used as an instrument of destruction. I don't know about you, but I can't help but think of James here. Remember how James had a threefold message, be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger? That slow-to-speak part, do you remember that? We were to be slow to use the tongue as a weapon. A lot of us do. A lot of us are way too quick to do that, but we need to be slow to use the tongue as a weapon. This small little instrument can do much damage, James said. "Just It's like a tiny spark setting a whole forest afire. Or a rudder that can turn a very small rudder that can turn a very big ship. Doeg the Edomite has used this instrument rather Then for good, he used it to corrupt good into evil. He was anything but loving. David is condemning Doeg here, as well as all who follow in Doeg's footsteps. This is actually a very strong psalm. What Doeg loves, or we might say what Doeg favors, is not that which was good, but that which was the corruption of the good. Doeg freely chose evil to empower himself. That's his motivation. He wanted to ingratiate himself to Saul and then therefore empower himself. He he must have already had a decent position in Saul's administration. He was the keeper of the flocks, but he wanted more than that. It was a power grab. He ingratiated himself to Saul at the expense of the lives of 85 innocent unarmed people. Verses 5 through 7 tell us that God will prevail in the end. But God will break you down forever. He will snatch you up and tear you away from your tent and uproot you from the land of the living, Selah. And the righteous will see and fear and will laugh at him, saying, Behold the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and was strong in his evil desire." Again, we have a comparison and contrast between those who would obey God and those who would disobey Him. Since God had promised in Deuteronomy chapter 28 to bless those that would that would obey Him and to curse those that would disobey Him, David is confident that eventually that principle is going to win out. As David is writing this psalm, it hasn't happened yet. David is writing this psalm after he gets the news that Doeg the Edomite, Lied to Saul about his visit to the priest at Noah. David is heartbroken, but at the same time, David knows that in the end, righteousness is going to win out. David was confident that God would end up one day slaying the deceiver, slaying the evil person. God will break you down forever. He will snatch you up. He will tear you away from your tent and uproot you from the land of the living. That says that David knows that there's going to be a time when God takes Doeg the Edomite out. Just like he took Adolf Hitler out and just like he took Joseph Stalin out. They murdered a lot of people, but in the end, they got theirs. They got it from a human perspective here on earth, and they're going to get it forever in eternity. Sometimes people misunderstand, verse 6, And the righteous will see and fear and will laugh at him, saying, It's not laughter about happiness that this has happened. This is a different kind of thing. This is a joy that God in the end is going to come out on top. Nobody who is righteous really takes pleasure in anyone else going to hell. We shouldn't. I know sometimes when we see things that seem like they're great injustices, you'll see Christians with placards and with the most vile things on them, and that's not helpful at all. This little group that goes around the country with, with placards to say things like, Fags burn in hell, gays go to hell, things like that, those are evil placards. I want nothing to do with them. Nothing to do with them at all. That is in itself the opposite of love. If God desires that all men to be saved, the all men also include those people that are the subject to those placards. And to use terminology like that is totally inappropriate for the Christian. Verses 5 to 7 look to the future. The final verses of this chapter, verses 8 and 9, point out that there is a benefit to trusting God in the present. We don't just have to live our whole life saying, well, I know things are terrible for me now. They're terrible for me now, but one day I'm going to be in heaven and this is all going to be over. That's not the Christian life either. Knowing that one day all wrongs will be judged and the righteous will be blessed is one thing, but we also need to know that God is going to take care of his righteous even now. Maybe not in the same way that you're praying for, because God's wiser than we are, but God's going to take care of us in the here and now too. We don't just have to wait to eternity. God can and will prosper the righteous even when it seems most unlikely. So it works both ways. God's going to take care of you now. He's also going to take care of you in the future. In the future, he's going to take care of evil people. They will be punished forever. They're also going to get theirs now, too. Have you ever known a truly evil person that was truly happy? I haven't. People can have riches. They can have power. But if they got it by evil means, if they got it in a rebellion against God, they can have all the power and all the riches they want, and they're never really happy. They're never really content. But let me ask you this. Have you ever known a poor person that was happy? I have. Some of the happiest people I've ever met are poor people. Have you ever known someone that was out of work that was actually happy? I have. Not, not because they were out of work, but because they had a relationship with Jesus Christ. Have you ever known somebody that had cancer that was happy? I have. I know people that have cancer that are happy, that are content. Now, they're not happy that they have cancer, but they're happy in spite of the fact that they have cancer. So it can be done. And that's what this psalm is about, too. Yes, Doi the Edomite's going to get his He's going to get it in eternity, but David's confident he's going to get it now, sooner rather than later. And the righteous will prosper, because God said they would, Deuteronomy 28. The righteous will prosper. Obedience does bring spiritual blessing. In spite of what might seem to be disastrous circumstances, the faithful believer will enjoy the blessing of God and will praise him for it. Look at the last two verses. But as for me... I am like a green olive, a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the chesed of God forever and ever. I will give thee thanks forever because thou hast done it, and I will wait on thy name, for it is good in the presence of thy godly ones. This almost gives me the image of a boxer in the ring. And this boxer is doing his best, and he gets knocked down. And the other fellow says, you better stay down. And the boxer says, no, I'm getting back up. He knocks him down again. He gets back up again. He knocks him down again. He gets back up again because he knows that the only reason he's going to lose is if he quits. David's not going to quit. He realizes that he is being prospered. He's like a green olive tree in the house of God. And this is right in the middle of a disastrous situation for him. As far as I know, and, and, and maybe I don't know, but as far as I know, I've never been personally responsible for the death of another human being, unless there was some accident. Almost was driving to Dallas Seminary one day where 30 comes into 45. Didn't see a motorcycle. Just didn't see him. Pulled right in front of him. That poor motorcycle. He was all over the road doing everything he can to keep from going head over, head over uh, wheels. When he got up next to me, fortunately, in a blessed way, he was able to get a hold of that motorcycle it came right up next to me, and he was fussing, and I could do nothing but say, hey, I am terribly sorry about that. I just didn't see you. you know, my bad. That's the only time I know I probably came close. But I know people have accident- who have accidentally been responsible for the death of others, at least in their mind that they were. It haunts them. The grace of God is the only thing that will help heal that pain. It haunts them. And that's the situation David's in as he writes these words. But as for me, I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. In spite of all this inner pain, he, he had inner contentment at the same time. You know it's possible to be in a great deal of pain and still be content. It's possible to have cancer and still be content. It's possible to be out of work and still be content. It's possible to have just suffered the death of someone you love very much and through the pain to still be content. That's David here. He is going to continue, even though he's just been through a terrible spiritual defeat, he's going to continue to trust in the Heston of God forever and ever. Doeg is corrupting the Hesed of God. David is going to have confidence in it. That's the comparison and contrast between these two people. And what does a confident person do? What does a content person do? Gives thanks in whatever circumstance they find themselves. An Old Testament concept as well as a New Testament concept. I will give thanks to thee forever. You've done it. And I'm going to wait on thy name. This means I'm going to have faith. I'm going to have faith in your name and your person for it is good in the presence of thy godly ones. That's this psalm. David is going to praise God in spite of the circumstance that he finds himself in. In summary... Evil is not an entity in and of itself. It is a corruption of an entity. It's a corruption of good. This psalm takes it even further and makes it even more specific. In this psalm, evil is a corruption of God's hesed, which is something that flows from his goodness. In psalm 52, written in response to Doeg's intense evil, David asserts that God's has said is sufficient even when it seems as though it's going up against the important